name is Pastor Jay Duncan, and I have the great joy along with Christy of leading this house. And this morning, we have a special friend and a special guest that is going to be ministering the word to us. Uh, I'm going to introduce him a little uh, unconventionally, and here's how I'm going to do this. Uh, Many of you guys know that part of my journey uh, took me to ORU from 95 to 99 and then 99 to 2003. And, uh, and I always questioned that part of my journey, to be honest with you. There's a big part of me that thought, man, I really should have taken an MBA or should have gotten my undergrad in business administration because I, I just didn't get the whole theology thing. Uh, I read all the books and really sitting around a bunch of peers who would argue over things that to me just seemed so trivial. I thought, guys, listen, it's not that hard. Love God, love people, go out, win the lost. Uh, let's, let's do that. Um, but as I've gotten a little bit older, here's what I've come to understand. My professors would say this all the time. They'd say, listen, your theology is the foundation for all of your practice. I was a practice guy. Man, I just want to practice. Get me straight to the practice. Get me out to the streets. Get me on the mission field and, and just turn me loose. And as I've lived a little bit since 24 years ago, and as I've had a few experiences in this thing called pastoral ministry and belonging to a people and walking a long road with them. Guys, I have come to humbly understand, man, our theology matters. It really, really matters. It shapes our orientation. It shapes and directs the posture of our heart. It is in God, the foundation that helps to shape our lives. Jonathan has been so instrumental along with Dan podcast theological journey the past several years and Jonathan introduced me to a podcast that I began listening to that has been so helpful particularly for me as I've been in such an exploratory process here the past three years Um, I'm learning the value of going backwards I'm learning the value of hearing from the teachers and hearing from those who have devoted their lives biblically, theologically, and historically to helping to pave the way for the people of God to be people of the kingdom here in the world. And one of the voices that Jonathan has introduced me to is going to be our guest speaker this morning. And here's why I shared that story. Because theology is valuable when it is lived and when it is lived from the heart. And what I can tell you is I've I've just sat down with Chris and his gorgeous wife. Uh, These guys have been so instrumental in helping me connect the dots of a lived theology. We're not talking about just ideas and we're not talking about just heady intellectual knowledge. We're talking about God and how we can orient our life in him. And Chris, I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for your faithfulness. And thank you for your devotion to God and the unique gift that you bring to the body of Christ. We are honored and we are delighted to sit with you today and to sit under your ministry. Jonathan. So pastor asked me to share a a little bit um, about how these guys have impacted my life, our lives. Um, I I realize now that so much of our church is new that that many of you may not even know. And in 60 seconds, I'll tell you, in 2015, Bonnie and I uh, had our first child and our son Oliver passed away after 20 days. And our lives, much like Pastor Jade's, we were at ORU. Uh, We had been steeped in in certain kinds of spirituality and theology, uh, which, which at the time was really all that we knew. 
And coming out of that season, I went through, and Bonnie went through these days, a serious time of, of deconstruction is, is a common popular word these days. It's not one of my favorite words. Uh, but really, it was a time where we took everything and, and put it to the test and asked questions about everything that we believed about life, God, and life in God. And one of the voices that I believe the Holy Spirit led me to was uh, the voice of Dr. Chris Green and a small handful of others. And when I found these voices that seemed to resonate and shed light on some of the areas uh, that really needed some excavation in my theology, uh, I tried to eat up and soak up everything that I could by those voices. And Dr. Green was one of those voices. Um, I got to meet him and his wife, Julie, and their daughter, Zoe, here. Last year, for my 30th birthday, Bonnie sent me, at, well, she sent us on a trip to Cleveland, Tennessee. And uh, guys, I'm not going to lie. Um, Cleveland would not have been my first choice had it not been for the Greens being there. So I just want you guys to know, I, I don't, I know them virtually much more than I know them in person, but from what I do know about them, they are tender, humble, and Dr. Green has given his life to studying the things that he's going to impart to us this morning. So let me encourage you to have open minds, tender hearts, and take good notes. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. It's a joy to be here today for the first time and to have my daughter Zoe with me, my oldest, and my wife Julie. Today is our 18th wedding anniversary. It's been a good, good time so far, at least. I'm expecting it to get better from here. And to have two of Julie's brothers and their families with us today who are not only family to me, but also dear friends. Thank you with us. And Pastor Jade to you and Christy, Pastor Jonathan to you and Bonnie. Thank you for the ways in which you've opened yourselves up to us. And I'm excited about the friendships that are developing there. And for the rest of you whom I'm just meeting just now, I'm excited about whatever happens this morning and whatever happens beyond this morning, right? If I never get to come back, I'm going to try to make sure that I say everything I need to say today. <laughs> But on the off chance that I do come back, I look forward to meeting more of you and getting to know your story. My wife has a wonderful story about the time Jonathan came to my house. So if you'll catch her after church and ask her how I embarrassed her when Jonathan was at our house, she'll tell you about it. Let's pray and then we'll jump in. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the ways in which you open up time and space for us to be with you and to be with each other. And that you speak to us. In, in the foolishness of preaching, your voice is heard. And in hearing your voice, we respond with joy. And in that response of joy, you fill us with your life for the transformation of the world. God, I pray that we will hear you, that we will respond with joy, that your life will rise up in us and spill out from us and transform the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Yes. Amen. Amen. I think there's a, a widespread assumption and I, I'm sure many of you at least heard it if you don't, in fact, believe it yourselves, that the New Testament, the Bible, is simple and straightforward and, and more or less self-explanatory. It means what it says, and it says what it means, and it's accessible for anyone who wants to read it. And that later, 
people like me, theologians, came along and made it complex and difficult, that we, we layered over the simplicity of Scripture with heady ideas, with matter is the New Testament, the Gospels, the letters of Paul, the other epistles that we have, the Revelation, is incredibly challenging. It's unbelievably deep and mysterious. The claims that are in Scripture, we're still unpacking. I mean, I want you to, to think for a moment about the fact that we're 2,000 years from I have gathered from the writing of these texts. For 2,000 years, people like you and I have gathered in spaces like this one around these texts and read them and asked God to speak to us, and they're still not exhausted. So the fact is not that the Bible is simple and we've made it difficult. The fact is the mystery, the depth of the mystery that is in Scripture is inexhaustible. And we're just doing everything we can to gather as much of that as we can. We're trying to make as good a sense of the mystery as we can make so that we can live lives that are faithful. And the passage that we're going to read today, which is familiar, a passage I think for most of us, is like that. It is, it is a deep, deep, deep well. In fact, Gregory the Great, one of the early church fathers, he says, Scripture is like the ocean. It is shallow enough for lambs to wade and deep enough for elephants to swim. Wow. It's shallow enough for lambs to wade. It's deep enough for, for elephants to swim. So we're going to try to get into some of the elephant territory today, some of the, the space where there is swimming, because I think that's exactly what Paul is saying to this Corinthian church. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 We'll read through verse 12. It is not ourselves that we proclaim, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For the same God who said, out of darkness let light shine, has caused his light to shine within us, to give the light of revelation, the revelation of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I think at the heart of all of our commitments, at the heart of all of our beliefs, is the belief that God is like Jesus. As one theologian has said, God is like Jesus, and in him there is no un-Jesus likeness at all. He is exactly like Jesus. He is Jesus. If you want to know what our God is like, look at the face of Jesus Christ. And that's what's been revealed, Paul says, that we, we proclaim that one, Jesus as Lord. Then he says, and this is the passage that's familiar to us, we are no better than pots of clay to contain this treasure. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, is the traditional phrasing. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. And this proves that such surpassing power does not come from us, but from God alone. Hard-pressed and challenged on every side, we are never hemmed in or crushed. Bewildered and perplexed, we are never at our wit's end and never despair. Hunted and persecuted, we are never abandoned. Struck down, we are never destroyed. Wherever we go, we carry death with us in our body. The death that Jesus died, that in his body also life may reveal itself the life that Jesus lives. For continually, while we still live, Christ's death happens in us so that death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. 
continually, we are being surrendered into the hands of death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in this mortal body of ours. What a challenging text. What a, what a difficult claim to make, that we are always a difficult claim to understand as well as to make, that we are carrying the death of Jesus in our bodies. We know the passage, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We know that we are hard-pressed but never destroyed, that we are perplexed but never in despair. But what does it mean to carry the death of Jesus in our bodies? What does it mean to say that death is at work in us and life is at work in you? I think it helps to get, get some sense of why Paul wrote this letter. And, and the fact is, Paul had planted this church. Corinth was a Roman colony, which he had been in this city and had planted a church there. And several years had passed in which he had sent letters and they had tried to deal with certain problems. We have one of those, 1 Corinthians, in which he was dealing with difficulties that had emerged after he left and had gone on to do other work. But after about three years or so, another group of ministers came up from Jerusalem and they had letters of recommendation from the apostles in Jerusalem. And they were incredibly eloquent speakers who performed all kinds of miracles. And those people, with their letters of recommendation and their eloquent speaking and their miracles, they turned that congregation away from Paul and to themselves. So that the church that Paul had founded no longer looked to him as their apostle, as their father in the faith, they looked to these new men who had come along eloquently, powerfully, legitimately, letters of recommendation, and turned to their leadership. And at the heart of the problem was the fact that all of these leaders, the leaders that had come up from Jerusalem, whom Paul mockingly calls super apostles. I love this about Paul. He's, he's, a, he's a wonderful smart aleck, right? Smart. I, I don't know if that's your spiritual gift or not, but I, I, I hope it is. I cherish that gift. And it certainly was Paul's spiritual gift, right? That he, he mocks them as super apostles. And he says that it's the reason you've turned from me to them, the reason that you've turned away from the gospel I'm preaching to the gospel they're preaching, is that they play to your prejudices. They give you what you want. And what you want is honor and influence and esteem and cultural sway. What you want is to be recognized as successes, as mattering in the world, as standout people. And these men came and gave you that. And so you turned away from me to them. And the fact is, Paul will say all the way through this letter, they're right, I am a failure. They're right, I am weak. They're right, I, I'm not honorable. I'm not eloquent. And precisely the passage we are, God has chosen me. That it's precisely, and this is the passage we all know, in my weakness that God's strength is perfected. So what Paul does is say the problem you have is with your assumptions about what you want from life. You want honor and esteem and privilege and cultural sway, and that's not what the kingdom is about. And my life, which is about weakness and brokenness and frailty, is what the kingdom is about. It is the way in which the kingdom is coming to us. So that's the challenge. And to get that challenge said, he gives a whole series of images that climaxes in this image we just saw in the text today, that we are clay pots carrying treasure. But just, just to give you some background, let's look in chapter 2. I want you to see a couple of these images that Paul uses because they're, they're astounding. They're astounding. Later in the letter, he will, 
he'll reverse their expectations by saying, telling the story about a time that he's in a city and there are people trying to kill him, trying to destroy him, and he has people let him over the wall in a basket at night. And he tells the story as if he's boasting. And the irony is, and again, I told you, Paul is a world-class smart aleck. The point is, in Roman culture, whenever the Romans, Roman army would besiege a city, the first soldier over the wall into the city would receive a laurel, would receive a celebration, a commendation as, as victor. And what Paul is saying is, I'm so far from your ideal, I'm not the first one into the city, I'm the first one out. As soon as there's trouble, I'm out. Right? So that's, that's the kind of subversion that he's practicing on them. He's taking everything they value and saying, I'm not what you want at all. And that's precisely why God has sent me to you. I'm going to disappoint you in every way, and that's precisely how God's grace is going to come to bear in your life. Look at these images that he gives. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But thanks be to God, verse 14. Thanks be to God who continually leads us about captives in Christ's fragrance of full procession and everywhere uses us to reveal and spread abroad the fragrance of the knowledge of himself. We are indeed the incense offered by Christ to God, both for those who are on the way to salvation and for those who are on their way to damnation. To the latter, it is a deadly fume that kills. To the former, a vital fragrance that brings life. This is the image Paul gives. Again, in Roman culture, after the Roman army had conquered a people, that leader, whoever he happened to be, the general of that army, would come back with his soldiers, with the victorious army, and in their train, they would bring slaves from the people that they had conquered. And they would parade those people through the city as proof that they had won. And those slaves who were being paraded through the city in what was called the triumph would carry incense offering to the Roman gods their worship, even though these were not their gods, because they had been conquered. And what Paul says is, you want to know what I'm like? You want to know what my ministry team is like? We're like slaves who've been conquered, and now we're being led through the city, exposed to mockery, but Jesus is the one who's leading us. Jesus is the one who's exposing us to your ridicule. And we're offering up our incense, and if you know Jesus, you know what we're offering up is the life of Jesus. But if you don't know Jesus, then we're going to scandalize you. Well, the way we're going to live, if you don't understand what Jesus is like, if you don't understand the nature of his kingdom, if you see the way we live, we will scandalize you. But if you know the heart of God in Jesus Christ, then you will recognize the fragrance of our life. But think, think about the, the claim that's being made here. Paul does not say we're like the victorious soldiers who conquered with Christ and now we're coming back in victory and triumph. He's saying, no, 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 we're not Christ's co-victors. We're the ones Christ has conquered. Now, in some parts of our tradition, those of us who are Pentecostals and Charismatics, we know how to talk about being victors with Christ. We know how to be more than conquerors. But I don't know that we know how to be the conquered ones, where Christ has overcome us where we lay at his mercy, where we are submitted to him in that radical way. And it's just as challenging today as it was all of those years ago in Corinth. For Paul to make this claim was scandalous. They didn't want to hear that they were slaves being led about for mockery. They wanted to be Christ's co-victors. They wanted honor and prestige and cultural sway. And what they get instead is exposure to mockery, what they get instead is weakness and fragility and failure. What they get is the death of Jesus. 
what they get is the death of Jesus. They bear around in their bodies the death of Jesus. That's not the only image he uses. Another one that he uses that's just as challenging, now as well as then, comes in chapter 3. Starting in verse 12. With such a hope as this, we speak out boldly. It is not for us to do as Moses did. He put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at that fading splendor until it was gone. But in any case, their minds had been made insensitive, for that same veil is there to this very day when the lesson is read from the Old Covenant. It is never lifted, because only in Christ is the Old Covenant put away. But to this very day, every time the law of Moses is read, a veil lies over the minds of the hearers. However, as Scripture says of Moses, whenever he turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord of whom this passage speaks is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And because for us there is no veil over the face, we all reflect as in a mirror the splendor of the Lord. Thus we are transformed into his likeness from glory to glory. Such is the work of the Lord who is the Spirit. Again, we know this passage well, but I don't know that we realize how scandalous the claim is that Paul is making. He says, we are not like Moses. Now think about what this means for a Jew to say, we are not like Moses. Right? A Christian who's committed to Moses as a father of the faith, someone who's committed to the Torah as scripture says, we are not like Moses. And then he takes the story that we all know. We all remember the story, right? That Moses goes up the mountain into the presence of God. The story comes off the mountain, his face is glowing. Remember this? And as we read the story and as we tell the story, he puts a veil on his face because Israel cannot stand to see the glory. The glory is so radiant and so powerful that they're overwhelmed by it and intimidated by it. So Moses veils his face to keep them from being intimidated. But Paul says that's not actually what went on at all. What happened was Moses went into the presence of God and he came back and his face was radiating. But over time, the radiation of that glory would fade. The glory would dissipate. It would ebb. And when it ebbed, Moses was afraid that the people would see him without the glory on his face. And he veiled himself so that the people couldn't see the glory fade. He didn't do it to protect them. He did it to protect himself. Or worse, he did it to protect God. He didn't want Israel to think that he couldn't bear the glory or that God's glory wouldn't last. And because he was afraid for himself and God, he didn't trust that God's glory was enough for them or that he was enough for them. He veiled himself to keep them from seeing. And what Paul says is, this is the difference between their ministry and mine. They are putting on a show for you because they don't trust you or themselves or God. That's why they have to parade themselves the way that they do. That's why they have to give themselves to the eloquence the way that they do. This is why they draw all the attention to their credentials like they do. This is why they so insist upon the miracles that they perform. Because they're afraid that if you see their humanity, you will no longer trust them or what God is doing in them. And Paul says, we're not like that. We take the veil off. You see that we're human and we don't hide it. We're not hiding the fact that we're human beings. We make bad choices. We say the wrong thing at the wrong time. We're not always in a sweet, kind mood. We're human. Sometimes we wake up on the wrong side of the bed. Sometimes we mishear what the Lord human means. Sometimes we give ourselves to something we shouldn't have given ourselves to. We're human, but we're not hiding that from you. Come on. How much of ministry 
is devoted to veiling ourselves, to making sure that people never really see the fact that we're human. That's exactly what Paul says these super apostles are doing. They're coming to you and they're, they're going to be what you idealize a minister to be. And he says, as long as they do that, they'll never reveal the glory of Jesus Christ. Because when God comes among us, he comes among us in the life of this lowly peasant Jew who's born in a backwater town, right? Who lives a life of absolute obscurity, has a few years of ministry, and then dies in a scandalous way outside of a city with all of the other criminals. That's how God is revealed. He's not revealed in glory. He's revealed in suffering. His glory is in the suffering. And so Paul says, that's why we are able to live the gospel in a way the super apostles are not. Because we have the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, when we quote that passage, what do we usually mean? We mean there's freedom to praise God. There's freedom to dance. There's freedom to sing. There's freedom to do cartwheels across the front if you want. Right? There's freedom, right? But that's not what Paul is claiming at all. I mean, I'm sure he's happy for you to do that. Cartwheel all you want, right? <laughs> but that's not what he's saying. What he says is there's freedom to be human. There's freedom to not be defensive about your own weaknesses. There's freedom to be open with God and with other people. And then this is the power of it. Because when you unveil your face, your face becomes a mirror that reflects the glory of God that's in the face of Jesus Christ. The fact is, if you're veiled, you'll never reflect the glory of God because that veil is actually keeping your face from revealing, from mirroring the glory of God that's in the face of Jesus Christ. So the paradox, the irony is this, the more human you are, the more the divine is revealed. The more human you are, the more you just live a human life, the more you just go be reflected. Everyday existence in a way that's honest, the more God's glory can be reflected on you. The worst thing you can do is try to act Christian. The worst thing you can do is try to perform for people in a way that you think they think Christians should live. Because that's not how God is revealed. God is revealed when we unveil our face and we live like human beings we are, like the human beings we are, and we let our faces mirror Jesus Christ. And then he comes, that's, those are the first two images. Slaves led into procession, a, mirror, a face like a mirror reflecting the glory of God, an unveiled face, and then clay pots that carry around treasure. And Paul's point is, those other people, the super apostles that you're in love with, they're fancy pots. <laughs> they're, they're gold and silver and precious stones. Right? They're Tiffany crystal. And we're cheap clay pots. We've got cracks. We're just barely holding together. You know, we were made inexpensively, cheaply, and we purchased cheaply. But the treasure is in the cheap pot, not in the expensive container, not in the precious crystal container, but in this clay vessel. That's where God has chosen to put his treasure. You can imagine how challenging that is for the Corinthians to hear because they're interested in the Tiffany crystal. They're interested in the precious vessel. And Paul says, you're more interested in the presentation than you are in the treasure that you're meant to be presenting. You're not looking for God. You're looking for people that make you think you have God. 
You don't want what God wants for you. You want what you want for yourself. And he says, we're not that. Sorry. We're not precious vessels. We're clay pots. We're in us fragile clay pots. Drop us and we break. But in us, precisely because we're clay pots, is the treasure of the glory of God. Now, Paul can make these kinds of subversive, mind-bending claims about being slaves in Christ's triumph, about being unveiled faces, revealing the glory of God, reflecting the glory of God, and being clay pots that carry the treasure because he has three deep theological commitments, and I want to share those with you this morning. These, these three commitments are what enable Paul to use these images the way he does. He can imagine the world the way he imagines the world because he believes, first of all, that God's life and our life, our lives, are inseparably bound up together. That God didn't have to do it that way. God didn't create us out of any need. This is one of the first claims that Christian and, and Jewish theologians make when they think about creation and God. And the first thing they claim, one of the first things they claim, is God never creates from need. God did not make us because he needs us. He didn't need to be loved. God is love. This is one of the reasons we confess the doctrine of the Trinity, that God's life is not a lonely life looking for love. God's life is already full. God's life is already the life of the lover, the beloved, and love itself. It doesn't need creatures to be fulfilled. God creates out of sheer gift. God creates and then binds his life to his creatures. The way Paul will say it in Romans 8 is that God gives up his son for us. So this is, this is what we have to hear. If God gives up his son for us and his son is who he is, then God would rather not be God at all than be God without us. God would rather not be God at all than be God without us. Why else would he create? Why else would he redeem? Why else would he bring us into his kingdom and bring his kingdom into our earth? He wants to be with us. And Paul understands that God has made it so that his life is covenanted to our life so that what happens to him us and what happens to us happens to him. And the power of Paul's images is that he's saying Christ doesn't want to march into the city without us. He's not interested in his triumph except for as it matters to us. And he's not interested in revealing his glory except through us. He wants our faces to be the mirror. He wants us to encounter him in one another. And he won't give you his treasure any other way than in clay pots. God wants to bind himself to human beings. I don't know that we believe that. I mean, we, we've already today more than once had reiterated to us that we are beloved, that we are children of God, that God delights in us. But I don't know that we, we believe that down in our bones and our guts. God would rather not be God than be God with what happens to you is happening to him. What's happening to him is happening to you. Think about what happens when Paul and Jesus confront one another on the road to Damascus. What does Jesus say to Paul about Paul's persecuting the church? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What you're doing to them, you're doing to me. Because my life and their life is inseparably bound up together. You can't extricate my life from their life. Or think about what Jesus says about the last judgment. In the last judgment, we're going to come before the Lord, and what is he going to say? I was hungry, and you fed me. 
I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was in prison and you visited me. Or I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. Because what you do to the least of these, you do to me. That's how committed God is to us. How devoted he is to us. He doesn't want the kingdom without us. That's why he creates. That's why he redeems his creation. That's why he perfects his creation. That's the first commitment Paul has. The first belief he has that enables him to make these claims, these startling claims about who he is. The second one, this is the hard one. This is the one where you're going to have to be really gracious and patient with me. You know, I, I sometimes tell my students this, that on the day of Pentecost, everyone spoke in tongues and people heard in their own languages, right? So I, I'm speaking in French, but then you hear me in English. But I have the reverse gift. And that is, I'm speaking English and all of you speak English, but you're very likely to hear something other than what I'm saying. <laughs> You're going to hear what I'm not saying because I'm going to talk about suffering. Because the second belief that Paul has, and this is hard to hear, it's hard to swallow. It's just as hard to swallow now as it was then. And that is God's life happens in us just as we suffer. Now, see how quiet it is, right? It's incredibly difficult to talk about this well. It's incredibly difficult to talk about it well because we all suffer. And we all struggle to make sense of our suffering in light of what we believe about God. But the first thing I want to tell you is that's been true of God's people from the beginning. The Bible is filled with stories of people who are suffering and trying to make sense of why they're suffering. It's not new to us. People have always been struggling with this. So I think the heart of it is this. God does not want us to suffer. But God wants our suffering to change the world. This is the way I want to put it. God does not want us to suffer, but God wants through our suffering to destroy suffering. In, in the liturgy, in the, in the Anglican tradition, there's, there's a line in the liturgy that says, he trampled down death by death. The way in which God destroys death is by dying. And the way in which God is going to destroy suffering and overcome the suffering that he does not want for us is precisely by sending us into the heart of suffering. Now, there are some versions of our tradition, some versions of the Christian life that want to emphasize that Christians live in a space, that we don't experience the world the way everyone else experiences the world. Those people may suffer, but we do not. Those people may live difficult lives, but we do not. Those marriages may be troubled, but ours aren't. They may be having a hard time paying their bills, but our God supplies all of our needs. And what happens over time is that we're faced with a reality. And that is, that's not really happening for me. So that means either I'm not doing something right, or God isn't who he says he is. But what if that's not the truth? What if, what if Christians aren't called to live in some safe space apart from the world, but we're called to live very human lives in the midst of the world? And that what God wants, he doesn't want us to suffer. God does not delight in suffering, but he wants to destroy suffering. And he's invited you into the work of destroying suffering through the way that you suffer. 
He wants you to do exactly what Jesus did. How does Jesus overcome sin and death? By living a life that ends in death. That's precisely how he conquers it. Right? And that's how we're going to conquer it. And, and I don't want you, this isn't mystery. I, I mean this in the straightforward sense. I want you to think about the people in your life you know who are the holiest people. And I want you to think about what happens when they suffer. I, I think about my friend, Chris Orvin, who was born a quadriplegic and was, was said that he would die within a few days. He lived to be 42. But all of his life, he's absolutely at the mercy of other caregivers. I mean, I can't tell you how many hours I spent with Chris across the table talking theology while people spoon-fed him. But when I think about Chris Orvin, I don't think, what a tragedy, what, what a loss, what, what brokenness. What I think is, you know, quadriplegia is not that bad when you bear it like that. Because his dignity overcame the suffering. And so much, the way he bore his suffering was so sweet and so much like Jesus that when I encountered Chris, I didn't think about his suffering. I thought about his dignity. I thought about his grace. I thought about the way he effused the presence of God. That's how you defeat suffering. You enter into the heart of it. And as it happens to you, instead of letting it define you, you define it. Instead of letting it destroy you, you destroy it. And you keep living that kind of life until the end of everything when God does set the world right by destroying all that suffering is and all that comes about in the world to bring about suffering. And our lives are anticipation of that. So every time you're suffering, hear that as an invitation of God into the heart of suffering so that you can counteract it. He lets suffering happen to you so you can happen to suffering. He lets it come to you because he wants to see what you do to it. He wants to see what you do to it. Now, again, this is hard to hear. I mean, I'm, I'm still one who would say, God, you know what? That's beautiful. That's wonderful. I can think of a better way. And that is, let's just not do suffering at all. <laughs> but somehow, and this is, this, is, this is why suffering is not a problem to be solved. Nobody has the answer. That's why we've been wrestling with it for millennia. It's a mystery. But it's a mystery that we can hold within the mystery of God. I don't know why God decided to make a world in which suffering can happen, but I do know that if God is who Jesus says he is, he means for our suffering to transform the world, not for our suffering to destroy us. That I know, right? If God is who he says he is in Jesus, then our suffering is about the way in which God is gonna transform the world. It's not about judgment against us. And we suffer in all kinds of ways, and this passage points to it. I want you to look again at all that Paul says that he suffers. He is hard-pressed on every side. He is perplexed. He is persecuted. He is a suffering. All of these, I think, are different ways of talking about the kinds of suffering that happen to us. Affliction are being hard-pressed is to talk about the suffering that comes from the fact that this world is broken, suffering that comes from natural disaster. My grandparents' house destroyed by a tornado. There's the kind of suffering that just happens because we live in a broken world, and we live in a broken world with broken systems, where our politics don't work like they should, and our economies don't work like they should, and our medical industries don't work like they should, and our school systems don't work like they should, and because of that, we suffer. That's affliction, and Paul says we are afflicted. 
Just like everybody else in the world, Christians don't get an easier life than anyone else. We enter into the same life that everybody else lives, and we suffer just like they suffer. We're afflicted. And we're not only afflicted, we not only suffer from the nature of things, we're perplexed. Because we can't make sense of why this is happening to us. Now hear me, any version of Christianity that doesn't let you be perplexed is false. If it won't let you ask questions, run. Run from it because it's not the faith. Paul says we're perplexed. And if the Apostle Paul was perplexed about what God was doing in his life, I think you and I can be perplexed. I think it's safe for me to ask some questions from now and, now and again, right? So he says we're perplexed. We're troubled. We suffer from what's happening within us. And not only that, we're persecuted. And that's the suffering that comes from people around you. As one philosopher said, other people are hell. And we might not say hell, but they're purgatory at least, right? I mean, <laughs> other people are what make life difficult. So you've got affliction. You've got confusion. You've got persecution, suffering that's coming from the nature of things, suffering that's coming from your own heart and mind and the conflict in your soul, suffering that's coming from the difficulty that other people present to you. And then Paul says we are struck down. And this is, this is astounding, but everywhere Paul uses the language of struck down, it's a reference to the judgment of God. So Paul says we've got suffering from the nature of things, we've got suffering from our own brokenness, we've got suffering from the people around us, and sometimes of God, because God is correcting us. Sometimes it's the judgment of God on us. We are the people that enter into all that to transform it. What would it look like to live in a world of affliction, but not to be overcome by it, not to be crushed by it? What would it look like to be perplexed, but never in despair? What would it look like to be persecuted, but know we're never abandoned? What would it look like to be struck down, but know we're never destroyed? Because when we live that, when we live a life of affliction that's not crushed, right? And perplexion that's not despairing. And persecution that's not living in the sense of abandonment. When we live that kind of life, what comes out of us is a revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Because that's exactly what happens with Jesus. I could talk about this all day, but think about Jesus when he's on the cross. As they're killing him, what's he, what's he saying? What's coming out of Jesus as they're killing him? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So he's being afflicted and persecuted. He's perplexed. God is striking him down all in the same moment. And out of him comes the forgiving heart of God. Out of him comes mother, this is your son. Son, this is your mother. So that on the cross, as he's being persecuted, afflicted, perplexed, and struck down, Jesus is bringing people together, reconciling people, and pouring his forgiveness out on them. That's what we're called to do. And I have really bad news. You're going to be afflicted, whether you admit it to yourself or not. You're going to be afflicted. You're going to be confused, whether you ever acknowledge it or not. You're going to be persecuted, and you're going to be struck down. The question is, are you going to let God happen in you while that's happening? Are you going to let God's life rise up in you in the midst of it? Everybody okay? We got a few more minutes? We, we referenced the prayer, the Abba Father prayer this morning. Paul says in Romans 8 and in Galatians that the Spirit moves in us so that we cry, Abba, Father. But do you know the only time in the Gospels that we have record of Jesus crying, Abba, Father, is in Gethsemane. The only time we hear Jesus saying those words, Abba, Father, are when he's in the place of crushing. 
Because what the Spirit does, hear me, what the Spirit does is lead us into the place of the Son. And the Son is in the place of suffering on the behalf of the world. So the Spirit leads us right into the maw, right into the mouth of suffering. And there we cry out about our intimacy to God. You remember what Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what good is it, right? Everybody loves those who love them. And this is what I should say. What what does Satan say about Job? He loves you, God, because you bless him. I wonder how many of us really can cry, Abba, Father, not when we're being wined and dined, not when we're moving from glory to glory, not when we're living from mountaintop to mountaintop, but when the Spirit has led us into Gethsemane, where we are being crushed, and there we cry, Abba, Father. That our intimacy with God is inseparably bound, inseparably bound up with the conflict between what we want and what he wants. And any version of our faith that doesn't lead you to the heart of that conflict is lying to you about what God has called us to. This is why Jesus said things, he was pretty straightforward about it. If you follow me, you're going to have to die. You're going to have to take up your cross every day. You're going to have to turn the other cheek. You're going to have to go, and no wonder people didn't want to follow him. I mean, he made it difficult, right? I mean, Jesus didn't have a low bar where everybody could get over it easily. He said, listen, you're going to have to go the extra mile. You're going to have to not only love those who love you, you're going to have to love those who hate you. You're going to have to pray for those who abuse you. That's the life we're all called to. As Bonhoeffer says, when God calls a man, he calls him to come and die. That's that because of the gospel. If you hear it this way, God calls you to come and die because in your death, he's going to reveal his life. He doesn't want you to be afflicted and perplexed and persecuted and struck down for its sake. He's not a masochist, right? God does not rejoice in seeing us suffering, and he doesn't do it to test us either. It's not that God doesn't know our hearts. He does it so that we can happen to the world. He lets us be broken so that out of our brokenness comes the perfume of his presence. So that the sweet smell of his glory breaks into the world. I think, I think so many things come to mind. I mentioned Chris already, but I think about a Haitian pastor. Do you remember probably a decade ago, there was a terrible earthquake in Haiti that destroyed Port-au-Prince. And there was a pastor on the news the very next day standing in the rubble of his church on CNN or whatever it was I was watching at the time and preaching about the goodness of God, standing in the rubble of his church. He's in Gethsemane, and what's coming out of him is Abba, Father. What's coming out of him is the sweetness of the Spirit. So don't mishear me, please. God doesn't delight in your suffering. I don't delight in your suffering. You should fight against your suffering, but fight against it in a way that reveals the character of God. Resist it in a way that reveals the character of God. God, we can never expect to look like Jesus unless God leaves us hanging. But here's the good news. He never just leaves you hanging. For a while, yes. Friday, yes. Saturday, yes. But Sunday, he acts. Yes, he'll leave you hanging for a time. Ask Job, ask Jesus, ask Paul, ask any saint of God. 
but he never leaves you there. You're persecuted, but you're not abandoned. But there's no, you are hard pressed, but you will not be crushed. You're perplexed, but there's no need to despair. You're struck down, but he will not let you be destroyed. And this is the third belief that Paul has, and I'm almost done. This is the third belief that Paul has that sustains him and funds all of his countercultural subversive claims to the Corinthian church. And that is, because God's life is happening in us, we do not fear any future. Because God's life is happening in us, we do not fear any future. Maggie Ross, who's an Anglican monastic, she makes this difference between a future that's determined by magic and a future that's determined by prayer. And she says, magic is concerned about the short term and unconcerned at all about the long-term consequences. It wants a certain outcome in the future and it does whatever it has to do in the present to make that outcome happen, everything else be what it is. But prayer is about situating ourselves in the character of God in such a way that we say, come what may, no matter what comes to us, we trust you. You remember the story of the three Hebrew boys they are about to be thrown in the furnace, right? And what do they say to the king? We're not going to bow. Our God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. You hear what they're saying? Whatever future comes, if God delivers us, we'll rejoice. If he doesn't, we'll rejoice. If God saves us from you this way, we'll, ce- we'll celebrate it. If he doesn't save us from you that way, we'll celebrate it. Because we know that when everything is said and done, good will triumph. He will set the world right. His kingdom will come and all the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdoms of our God. When everything is said and done, God will have the victory. And so we can wait as long as we need to wait, trusting him to act in those ways. We we don't have to fear any future. The way Paul says it to the Corinthians is this. You can do nothing against the truth. And this is what he means. You can reject me, and that gives me the the opportunity to enact Jesus' death. I'll carry Jesus' death around in my body. If you mistreat me, if you persecute me, if you reject me and despise me, then I'm Jesus on the cross. And I'm bearing in my body the death of Jesus. If you embrace me and celebrate me and rejoice with me, then I'm Jesus of Easter. I'm Jesus who's been resurrected. I'm Jesus who's back with his family, back with his friends, rejoicing in the life that God has given him. But no matter what you do to me, I can be Jesus. You can strike me down, Jesus was struck down. Or you can raise me up, Jesus was raised up. Because I can bear in my life the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus. Nothing you can do to me can keep me from being Jesus. Whatever future you bring, is a future in which I can be Jesus. And that's all I want. He's claimed me. He's my friend, he's my lover, he's my spouse, he's my king. He, what else would I want? There's no future that can come that can separate me. So I leave you with this image. And Pastor Jade's gonna come and save me from all this. <laughs> and you from all this, I guess. You remember the story of Moses and the rock in the wilderness? The first time, he's told to strike it. And when he strikes the rock, what happens? Water comes out and all the people drink. Then, later, 
There's another moment where they're all thirsty and God tells him to go to the rock and speak to it and water will come forth. But what does Moses do instead? Moses is human and that was one of those days for Moses. And he struck the rock twice. But here's the, here's the beauty. Water still came out. There's so much to learn from this story. But here's, here's what I want to leave you with. To be the people of means that we're rocks out of which comes water. I mean, that's not supposed to happen. We're not the well. We don't bring the rain. We're just rocks. But our God brings water out of rocks. We're just clay pots. But there's treasure here that has nothing to do with the value of the pot. It has nothing to do with the integrity of the pot. It has nothing to do with the skill used in making the pot. It's just about the treasure in the pot. The water is going to come from the rock. And here's the good news. The water will come from the rock whether people strike you or they speak to you. They struck Jesus, and what came out of him was the water of the Spirit. And they spoke to Jesus, and what came out of him was the water of the Spirit. And here's my word of comfort to you. After all of that horribly bad news that I've been giving you all day, here's the word of comfort. With the character of God in you, there's nothing anybody can do to you that won't bring the life of God out of you. There's nothing that anybody can do to you that won't bring the life of God out of you. Rest in that. It's not, you're just a rock. But our God does the impossible and the unthinkable. There's nothing to fear. I think so many of us are absolutely in the grip of fear. We're so afraid about what's happening in our world, about what's happening to our world. But Christians are not fearful people. There is no future that can come. No future, however dark. There's no future that can come that isn't a future in which we can be Jesus. And because of that, there's nothing anybody can do to us that won't bring the life of God out of us. And we rejoice in that. Pastor Jade.